0: Welcome back to the My PLJ Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ho. On this week's episode, we bring you a recording of our panel from earlier this month, Dance Dance Legal Revolution. Moderated by IPLJ Associate Editor Kara Krakauer, this panel will feature a discussion about the popular video game Fortnite, which has recently found itself in hot water for selling content that mirrors dance moves made by famous artists. Some of those artists include Brooklyn rapper Two Millie and star of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Alfonso Ribeiro. On the panel is their counsel, The attorneys of Pierce Bainbridge. Who will be talking about the lawsuit, its cultural implications, and the experience of working in a young and upcoming law firm. Amongst the speakers are David Heck, managing partner and co-chair of the Intellectual Property Group of Pierce Brainbridge, Max Price, partner and co-chair of the intellectual property group of Pierce Brainbridge, and Yi Wen Wu, an associate at Pierce Brainbridge. As you know about the recording, some of the audio is a little bit rough and a little hard to hear, but I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Michael Rivera, and I'm the managing editor of the Fordham Intellectual Property, Media and Entertainment Law Journal. I'd like to begin by thanking our panelists and everyone in the audience here today attending Dance Dance Legal Revolution. When I was first elected managing editor about a year ago, one of my main goals was to try and host a moonshot event, something that involved a very popular and current area of the law with special guests. After much back and forth with my fellow editor, Sean Corrado, and conversations with today's moderator, Kara Kirkauer. Car- Car- we decided that hosting an event on, fort- on the Fortnite dance emote cases would meet that criteria. As a former player of Fortnite myself, I've been following this story since it first cropped up in the fall of 2018, and immediately found myself engaged with the one-of-a-kind subject matter of these disputes. After months of planning and communication with Mr. David Hecht and Pierce Rainbridge, we were finally able to create and execute today's event, Dance Dance Legal Revolution. Uh, although 2 unfortunately had to cancel his appearance today due to promotional scheduling, I'm very excited that we were able to host his council here today with us. I would like to thank our panelists, Mr. David Hecht, Mr. Max Price, and Mr. Wu, as well as the moderator, Kaira Kerkauer, for taking part in today's event. I would also like to thank Sean Corrado for his key role in helping arrange today's proceedings. Without further ado, I would like to introduce Sean, who will talk a little bit about the background of these cases. Thanks, Mike.
2: My name is Sean Corrado. I'm the senior writing and research editor of uh, the Fordham IPLJ. um, To provide a nice little background of the events that have brought us here today, Um, in the summer of 2017, Epic Games released the video game, Fortnite. It was originally released as a player versus CPU game, but in late 2017, it was released as a battle royale royale style free-for-all and its popularity soared. Fortnite discovered that it could profit off of in-game purchases such as weapons, skins, and emotes. Emotes are specific dances that a player's avatar can perform throughout the entirety of gameplay. Not long after these emotes were available for purchases, players discovered that they were reproduced from various pop culture dance crazes. These dances included two Millie's Millie Rock, rebranded as Swipe It!, uh, Black Boy JB's famous shoot dance, rebranded as Hype, and the Carlton, popularized by Alfonso Ribeiro, known as Carlton from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and that dance was rebranded as Fresh. Um, in addition, uh, dozens of other dances have been repropriated from various pop culture crazes. The discussion of whether it was legal for Fortnite to appropriate these previously famous dance moves was propelled by a Twitter conversation in July 2018 between Chance the Rapper and his followers. Chance stated, Fortnite should put the actual rap songs behind the dances that make so much money as emotes. Black creatives created and popularized these dances, but never monetized them. Imagine the money people are spending on these emotes being shared with the artists that made them. A few months later, 2 Millie and others filed suit against Epic Games. Pierce Bainbridge, the firm that represents these artists in these proceedings, is here with us today to discuss the lawsuit, its cultural implications, and the experience of working at a young, up-and-coming law firm.
1: So we'd now like to introduce today's panelists. So first is David Hecht. He's the managing partner at Pierce Bainbridge, as well as the co-chair of the intellectual property practice group. Uh, A titan in the field of intellectual property, David Hecht represents some of the most powerful and influential people and companies in the world. He represents plaintiffs and defendants in high-stakes commercial disputes with an emphasis on patent, trademark, copyright, trade secret, and right of publicity cases. David Sirs is the co-chair of the firm's Intellectual Property Group. He's a founding popular, uh, partner rather, of the firm's New York and New Jersey offices and manages both offices. Heck graduated from Fordham Law School in 2008 and was a former managing editor of the Fordham IPLJ.
2: Next up, we have Mr. Max Price. Max Price is the is a partner and co-chair of the Intellectual Property Group at Pierce Bainbridge. Um, he's a founding partner and co-partner in charge of the New York office. He is a commercial litigator with a focus on intellectual property litigation. He has litigated complex commercial and patent infringement cases for Fortune 500 companies. The cases Maxim works on have ranged from the bankruptcy litigations of a major car manufacturer to the infamous smartphone patent wars. Before joining Pierce Bainbridge. Maxim worked for Jones Day and Quinn Emanuel, and
1: he graduated from Fordham Law School in 2008. Wen Wu is an associate at Peer Spain Bridge, Beck Price and Heck LLP. Uh, Wen is an associate uh, at the New York office who focuses on intellectual property litigation. He has represented high-profile co- clients in complex patent cases across a wide range of technologies, including financial software, nanoparticles, pharmaceuticals, peer-to-peer systems, tissue grafting, and skin care. Not only is Wen a trial lawyer, but his work extends to interparty reviews and appeals before the Federal Circuit. Before joining Pierce Brainbridge, Wen practiced at Alston and Bird, who graduated from Fordham Law School in 2014.
2: And finally, I'd like to introduce our moderator for the day, Miss Cara Krokauer. Uh, she is currently a litigation fellow at Pierce Brainbridge, and she is an associate editor of Fordham IPLJ as well as the co-president of Fordham Law Women. Uh, she's a third year student at Fordham Law. Uh, Cara is the author of the note, Finding the Bar, Fitting the Untried Territory of Choreography Claims into Existing Copyright Law, which was published in the Fordham Intellectual Property Journal in May of 2018. <coughs> a former dance student and current enthusiast, Kara is a litigation fellow, and she is currently working on researching, drafting, and strategy for choreo- choreography copyright infringement claims. Kara will graduate in this upcoming spring. And I'd like to pass the mic over to her today. Thank you, everyone.
3: Um, So I wanted to start off with you guys telling us a little bit about uh, the firm, since it is young and very exciting. And I've certainly had fun getting to know people. um, So I was hoping you could give us a little more information. We kind of
4: all decided that we were going to have this really fast-growing, really new-age firm, uh, try to make it as flat as possible so there's not this sort of hierarchical uh, division. Uh, One important thing that we want to distinguish um, from other big firms is that there tends to be this culture of almost extortion at big firms where you'll have a real bifurcation between a sales department and a service department. And the sales will hang over the heads of the service attorneys, the idea that they could just leave with the clients. And vice versa, the service department says, well, you you, know, you can leave all you want, but who's going to service your clients? <clears throat> and you end up with this infighting where some people believe that all they have to do is sales and others can just do the attorney work. Uh, and we did not believe that would be a proper model. So in our firm, one of the most important things is that everyone does both. Everyone does both sales, everyone does both service, and that is every single day. It's not just, hey, sometimes you can do some sales. Every single day, you do something towards the business development of the law firm. And that has led to, I believe, it's in part what led to a very, very good culture at our firm. Everybody feels equal uh, nobody's fighting over clients. Um, we just we just all work together on all aspects of building a firm, and I think it's, it's really helped us grow really quickly, uh, avoid some of the pitfalls that, that big law does fall into.
5: So I think the uh, the New York office was actually my creation. <laughs> I went to, uh, to visit uh, John Pierce, who was uh, working at Quinn Emanuel while I was on uh, the Apple versus Samsung smartphone wars, with Max, and John had just launched the firm, and as soon as I saw his website, I knew that John had the magic touch when it came to marketing, and many times you know, throughout my career in Big Law, I felt in many ways um, totally restricted in terms of how, to Max's point, how I could be able to, how it, I would be able to market. It's very difficult because Big Law tells you what you can't do. You can't say that. You can't argue that. You can't take on that client. You don't want to do that. You, you, there's a million things that you can't do, and it's all wrapped in a lot of red tape. And because of that, I was going very, very very frustrated, and I knew there had to be a better way. We we had talked about going out on our own, but you have this problem where you, know, you really do need a critical mass of people to take on big cases. I know that if it was just the three of us, we would have a very difficult time fighting Kirkland Nellis in these lawsuits, for example. So we do
6: it anyway.
5: It's nice that we have support, and that's one of the things that the firm is amazing at. We have this swarm mentality where when we need resources, there are no silos, so people can just dive in and help when things get crazy, and that is very welcome. So instead of hearing what you can't do, you hear what you can do, and you hear that you can do anything. You can do anything that you set your imagination to. You could find any client, you can take on any type of, of uh, engagement. If it's uh, hourly, we can certainly be flexible. If it's contingency and we analyze it and it makes sense, we can take that on too. Um, we have links with litigation funders. And so we, we can really do whatever we see high value in. And that is exceedingly rare because at other places, you are, are really discouraged from doing that kind of business development. Uh, because as Matt said, you know, there there are rainmakers and most of the firm services those rainmakers and becomes something of a pyramid scheme elsewhere. So we are happy to be where we are. We're thrilled with the firm's expansion and you know, joining us today in the crowd. We have some amazing lawyers who we work with: Andy Lauren, Mike Pomerantz, uh, Caroline Polisi, who appears regularly on CNN, Fox, and others. Chrissy Dar, um, and I'm not sure if I'm missing anyone else, but some more, more might come, and some more. Uh, we're busy because every day we're, we're so busy. We're constantly getting new cases. Just this morning, we were uh, talking to somebody that, that uh, actually related to, not related to these cases, but through a contact, uh, knew about us and asked whether we do uh, labor and employment law, law and litigation. And the answer was absolutely that we do. Um, actually, you can see all our practice areas are up on the screen. We, we, we can do basically anything now. We have over 60 attorneys. Um, and we are just very excited about everything that we do and you find this tremendous energy among everyone at the firm and it's really amazing because unlike lots of other lawyers we talk to who want to uh, you know, just retire or do something else, we're just having fun every day. All right. Maybe I'll provide a little bit of perspective from the uh, younger
6: associate ranks at uh, Pierce-Bainbridge. Um, so, you know, to me, I never... Knew of a concept of a start law firm. I think that idea was very foreign to me um, until I met you know David Max here uh, sometime last year. And uh, you know David's absolutely right in that you don't really get told you can't do things uh, here. So for me, you know, you know most of us have come from big law backgrounds, and a lot of what you do is you know can't do this, you can't do that. Uh, Tone down an email to opposing counsel. You know, even though I hate them. So I mean, you get lots of things like that. Um, here, I think for a younger associate, I've had the opportunity to really, for me at least, uh, jumpstart my career and get a lot of uh, substantive experience. I think because the firm doesn't tell me no. You know, if you want to take a deposition, the, the firm will tell you yes. Go take the
4: deposition. And, uh, what you did you do in the first three weeks? After you started,
6: uh, I think I started. Million depositions with Dave here. That was a lot of fun. Don't um, oh,
4: forget the Minnesota trip. Oh yeah. Uh,
6: <laughs> if you want to argue in in, a, in a federal court, they'll tell you to argue in federal court. Um, <laughs> you know, for better or you you're told the sink or swim. But for 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 those of you who have that sort of entrepreneurial attitude that, that sort of um, that attitude where you know you don't want to sit back and just sort of languish in you know, a big law firm or just sort of you know languish wherever you are, then. Um, for me, it was, it was a fantastic opportunity. Uh, the other parts are in to start firm. You tend to use a lot more emojis than i
4: ever did in all firms. <laughs> I mean, that just speaks in general about uh, our use of technology. One major thing that tends to hold back the bigger firms is their sluggishness this this to adopt new technology. This idea that the firm has a set universe of technology that you can use, and this these are your, this is your toolbox, and this is what you have to work with you want something else, you're going to have to go through 20 different committees to try to get it included, um, and there's just so much popping up in terms of technology out there right now that is, is incumbent upon every firm to just say, go out and try new things. I mean, if it takes a committee, then at least you know put together 10 people and have them experiment with it, have them run with it for a little while and come report about it, and, and, and if people really need something, or they've gotten used to it, or they think that it would be really useful for them um, in terms of technology this just have it the attorney's toolbox should be should be really flexible like that which is what we can
5: do and you probably picked up so max's background is in computer science on electrical computer engineering um, wen is also a technology major what was your exact major I was in information technology so we all are in you know we love high tech we love um you know cutting edge tools and resources and that is exceedingly uh, frustrating at big law because you're you're getting you know ten year old version of Office uh, and we had know. Lotus
4: Notes. At not it was one of them. I'm not going to name which firm it was.
5: <laughs> so we were we were very frustrated with that. And here there's really you know no limits. If if we don't like one tool, we can shift to another. And uh, we found that you know just because something says that it's uh, you know cutting edge, it, it might not be. And we can pivot, and that's really nice. Um, but also, I, I think the, one of the, the great things about the people that we're attracting who are open to using those tools, is that these are people at our firm who get their hands dirty. And, for example, on on the Fortnite cases, we'll play the games or we'll have, you know, our our interns play the games. I have played NBA 2K19, and I suck (laughs) at (laughs) it. I asked them one weekend to look up uh, or to play it through for, not through, but to play it for uh, the shoot move that uh, we were about to file for JB, And so, you know, that those are actually real assignments. Um, so it's, uh, it's something very, very different. And that's also why, I mean, for years, when, when I was practicing patent litigation, I knew a lot of attorneys who just had no idea about the technology that they were trying to litigate. And that was shocking to me because, you know, and I actually would be surprised if any of our adversaries at Kirkland and Ellis are actually playing Fortnite. They probably just, you know, I mean, this is pure guesswork, but, you know, from my experience in big law, you talk to in-house counsel, and that's where you get your information, and you don't get your hands dirty. And so that's the difference. And there's a difference between when you are getting your hands dirty, and you learn about the technology, and you learn about what, what the case is really about, as opposed to hearing about it.
3: Well, it sounds like this innovative approach to building a firm has really led you to take on ambitious projects, like the Fortnite collection of lawsuits. Um, which, as everyone, I believe, knows, has been in the news, very popular. Obviously, Fortnite is an extremely popular game. Um, So I'm hoping that you can take us through some of the more specifics of what's going on there. There are a number of claims, and almost all of them are making new law, which is very exciting. So can you tell us a little bit about the different claims involved and how you approach making new law in
5: these areas? I think we should show the video quickly. It's, It's a very short video.
4: What is it? Control. I think it's funny that Karen is asking us to
5: tell you about our strategy considering she came up with (laughs) all of them. So, those are just some of the the Fortnite dances. Now, what's very interesting about Fortnite and the history behind it actually is that so we represent um, Lenwood Hamilton and Lenwood Hamilton's likeness was misappropriated by Epic Games years ago in the blockbuster Gears of War. This is a side-by-side image comparison. So that, that case is actually um, in briefing for Summer Judgment. And what turned me on to the Epic cases was we, we had Epic as an adversary. And when I started, somebody sent me the headline um, of 2Milli and what was going on and then offered to make me an introduction. And 2 Milli was was looking for counsel and talking to people. And we jived right away, and right after we announced that we were going to represent him, because that is actually one other thing that we do differently, and uh, part of our secret sauce that we could talk about because it's so obvious, that we are able to PR things. Uh, We are able to use the media the way some other attorneys do outside of big law, but in a way that helps our clients. Um, some people think that we're off the reservation doing it because we all come from conservative backgrounds in big law, but it actually is very, very helpful because it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the other side. And really we're just trying to advocate for our client no differently than in the courtroom. Um, but it's also exposure because this is a, these are very important issues that people should know about. And after we announced, not only that, that we were representing to Millie, but that we filed his suit because he was the first. Uh, many, the main people actually reached out to me. There, there were dancers, there were me, all kinds of choreographers who recognized that this was huge. And also, we were unaware that there was any protection in copyright for their craft, which I thought was shocking. But you know, these these things. There's maybe uh, two or three lawsuits in, in you know the, the history of. Um, any of the federal um, circuits that uh, has actually come about. And so and there's very, very little guidance. So it is not known. And part of what we're doing is this is a, a crusade to educate people because there are a lot of choreography whose work has been ripped off in the past and who need protection. And so that is part of our, our strategy to, to make it known what we're doing. Um, I talked to Alfonso Ribeiro uh, recently. I went, went over to California, and one of the things he told me, his his daughter loves to dance, and he actually told her, you should not go into this. Look at what's happening with Epic. They totally stole my intellectual property, and the fact that there's even a question about this that people are even asking, you know, and, and that this isn't a home run right out of the gate, which we think it is, but um, you know, the, the, sometimes the press disagrees, um, but we think that you know he he's right. I mean why is this question? why isn't this you know, exceedingly obvious? You saw the clips these are not inspired by these are dances that are taken from uh, you know the, the intellectual property whether it is uh, a choreography routine or whether it's a signature move that would go to right of publicity, our client's uh, ability to protect his or her commercial likeness um, or trademark because in some cases like backpack Kid, um, they call it backpack or they'll call it the floss and that's his, his intellectual property that's what he called it and he popularized it as so there's there's you know those three different forms of intellectual property and some of those cases are trying to figure out how those fit together you know for each client there are different rights at stake it's some you know two million we have um, you probably have copies of our reconsideration request to the copyright office. we submitted a two and a half minute clip of two Millie on top of a car, a truck, something like that, and he's dancing and he's doing moves that are, are no way simple because I don't think any of us could do it. I don't think any of you can do it, and I don't think you could do it either, despite any kind of dance training. So they're they're definitely not simple. They're not social because they're not meant to be a line dance. They're not the, you know anything that's well known as a, a, a waltz step. So these are very very uh, different things than um, you know the. the Prohibitions from choreography that are laid out, but, but by the Copyright Office and by uh, some of the notes to um, the legislation that we'll go through later. But what's fascinating is that you know Alfonso had to tell his daughter, and you know he he thinks now he's seen the headlines and he's troubled by this because he wants to get out there and tell people that what he's fighting for is not just himself, but it's his daughter, it's choreographers, it's dancers. Who have things that they create that just like paintings or words on a page or photography should be protected and just because you take out you know his face and you just put his movement like you would you know uh, sort of like Andy Serkis in Lord of the Rings they were capturing his movement you know they were buying his movement in that that you know the um, Gollum character right and and so movement is just as important as other forms of expression it's 360 degree movement of your body that, that should be protected if you're coming up with something that's original and creative, just like all the other forms of uh, copyright protection.
4: Um, I think what's important to note in that story about Alfonso Rivero is that he's a dancer by trade. I don't think everybody really realizes that given you know, his uh, his background and his appearances on, on The Fresh Prince, but he grew up very much as, as a dancer and a choreographer. He had like by the time he was a young teenager, he had put out a book on breakdancing where they included um, not only a tape with music on it, but also a pad you can you lay out on the floor to do your dance routine on. He had, you know, television advertisements for it. He appeared in a Pepsi ad where he danced like Michael Jackson and, and, and basically played a small Michael Jackson. Um, so to him, it was very near and dear to his heart. The idea that what he thought was going to be his life was it, it is no longer something that someone can do and make a career out of and so telling his daughter that I think was very painful
6: yeah and to follow up on that uh, what we've been surprised about and I guess we we're really not that surprised about is a number of esteemed uh, choreographers and dance professionals that have actually reached out to us to really offer help because you know for them it's also near and dear to their work you know we have people who've been dancing dancing or choreographing for you know, decades of their life. And for them, this never, for them, was never a question whether this was protectable or not. Um, but, uh, you know, as Dave can probably attest, we've had a number of people reach out and really offer their help and see what they could do to really contribute, um, whether services or advice or consultation. But it, it, the outreach has been tremendous for these cases.
5: And, by the way, you're seeing uh, just a few of... Uh, what happened is we dismissed um, voluntarily the cases after the. And I think you might ask us about this yeah. later. Yeah. But um, currently there are there's only the Running Man case which we are now co counsel on. That was the one case that we didn't file originally, and we were we have been requested to be co counsel in that case. And we have many more potential cases that we are uh, close to filing. There's one in particular that will be filed very very soon. It's it's being reviewed. Um, and, um, there's, so there, there's so many people that had reached out to us just about their, their dances in the game. And then there are others who were just turned on to this idea that choreography is protectable and that, you know, they, they were wronged in some way. And so we've been talking to those clients too. So as far as business development goes, this has been fantastic for us because we've really unlocked an entire segment, um, that really nobody had addressed before.
3: So David read my mind, um, and I was going to ask you next uh, how the recent decision from the Supreme Court in Fourth Estate Public Benefit Corporation versus WallStreet.com has affected the strategy of uh, this litigation. And uh, for those who don't know, uh, basically that case has decided that you cannot bring a claim for a copyright infringement case um, until you have registration from
4: the Copyright Office? Well, sort of. Um, A response. A response. Some sort of response. (laughs) It it could be a rejection as well, which is what makes it strange. It's one of those cases where it's clearly uh, a very fundamental reading of the statute that doesn't really make sense to practice. What the Supreme Court has said is that you cannot bring a lawsuit if you are in the middle of the application process. So if you've been rejected or if you've been you know if, if your application was accepted, then you can bring a lawsuit. But if you just filed the application, even though the outcome doesn't matter, you will be able to bring a lawsuit whether it's accepted or rejected. you still can for that period of time file a lawsuit and the issue with that in terms of statutory interpretation is that if it's rejected and you have to go through the appeal process and you have to uh, wait to hear back on final rejection, that's prejudicial to a potential plaintiff's statute of limitations, because they have no way of telling how long the copyright office is going to take. Um, they could be, for instance, if this these, these choreography becomes uh, more protectable than it is now, people will potentially rush to the copyright office, and then, they, then these things will start taking years, and nobody will be able to bring a lawsuit in time for uh, for damages to really be useful?
5: So, you know, as far as... We're not going to go into our litigation strategy, um, but many of these cases will be refiled probably pretty soon. Um, The Copyright Office has been fairly quick. There's ways you can expedite the examination. You have to if you are uh, about to file suit. There's pending litigation. It costs $800, so it's a little bit more expensive than the normal $55 fee. Um, But what's also interesting about these cases, uh, like I was telling you before, um, so we we submitted this two and a half minute clip of Millie on top of a car, and it was rejected. And that's the basis of what you're seeing and and what we're announcing today that we responded with. Uh, And that is different than the result from Backpack Kid, who submitted a 30 second clip. And that 30 second clip was accepted and registered. Um, Backpack Kid has other specimens that had been Um, applied uh, whose registrations were sought and one of them is pending so we we have a whole whole slew of different responses Um, right now we have backpack kid who has a registration orange shirt kid has a registration Um, some of the others are are in process or are being reconsidered Um, and so you know that doesn't quite make sense to me and there's different um, in terms of the the stark difference between two Millie and backpack kid for example why is it that a shorter clip where somebody who is, you know, a kid, his kid is dancing is different than a two and a half minute clip of two Millie doing all sorts of crazy moves on top of a car. Um, and so I, I think that there is no real handbook at the copyright office. I think they are very confused as to what to do. And you're going to see two dis- different results from two different of the, um, I don't think they're attorneys either. I think they're just examining people. Um and that's a problem because they don't—they don't know what to do. We're challenging them. Hopefully, that you know these, these cases will clear up what the meets and bounds of choreography protection are, is. Because uh, you know, to, to skip ahead, to give it some dimension. So you have in the 1976 Copyright Act was the first time that formally I can't see um, the statute expressed that you could include choreograph- the choreographic works. Before that, it had to be part of Dramatic composition, which is um, a story, basically, and choreography is not defined in the statute, and the legislative reports in the bills uh, from the bill indicates that social dance steps and simple routines are not included. So, what do you think the copyright office rejected two million for? Exactly that, which they don't—they probably don't even know what it means, because that those two things are undefined too. Social dance that well, there are examples of social dance steps given, but no examples of what simple routine. I think there's an example of simple routine, but no definition, of it. right? So that's a problem because they don't know what to do. When does something go from simple to complicated? Uh, there, there is no litmus test. So what, what we see is the Copyright Office is defining choreography as a related series of dance movements and patterns organized in a career in a whole. That's a very broad definition. And certainly what we've submitted for two million, Falls under that definition, and you know, Horgan is—oh, there's a typo there—but Horgan is one of the um, seminal cases in copyright, and, and it really doesn't say that much. It doesn't define you know what, how long a, copy, a choreography would need to be or anything like that. So these are all open questions, and they're good questions. But under the very broad definition that's on the top, there's no reason that you can't have a copyright for all of the choreography that we've submitted. And sorry, that was not a direct answer to your question, but was relevant.
3: Well, I, since this is what I was also looking at when I was writing my note, of course it's of interest to me as well. So thank you.
5: And, and by the way, uh, the reason that we were in touch with, with Kara is the Washington Post had actually cited to her note, which in my opinion is the, the seminal note on um, copyright and choreography and it's outstanding and it makes a lot of really good points about lowbrow versus highbrow and what is protectable what used to be uh kind of scoffed at and what is now protectable and this view that it, and this kind of goes along with this uh, cultural misappropriation that there's something different about an African American performer as compared to a Caucasian performer and there are these undertones of racism that we've we've seen yeah consider the difference between
4: ballet and the two million days.
3: Well, so on the topic of people who typically haven't always had great access to lawyers and legal representation, sort of moving towards that, do you feel like your approach as a law firm for sort of a modern age has made you much more approachable and has helped in sort of writing part of this issue that you need access to lawyers to realize you have these rights and protections available to you?
4: I mean, to me it was surprising that Two million had to search for an attorney in the first place. I think it's certainly our startup feel and, and, and the look and feel of our offices are, are more approachable than than your your white cases of the world. But um, I think the main well, one of the, one of the big differences that makes us more accessible to plaintiffs is that uh, we're also very active in the litigation funding space. Uh, That is, uh, we can approach funders, and and funders are, I think, much more interested in talking to us about some of these cases, and we know the process, we we know the process cold for how they like to see things, um, for how to propose a case to them, and we can just do it really much quicker, and and we tend to partner with litigation funders that tend to uh, turn things around much quicker, which is really important getting things on file overnight, which is what we like
5: to do. Uh, of course, funders have uh, underwriters, so they have. To, we have to present a case. When we do, we have to present a case uh, in a very uh, convincing way, and we have to show potential damages. There's all kinds of things that you would expect that they would be very interested in. Um, and, you know, it, look, in, in the patent space, for example, people have been using funders for, for many, many years and making you know, a lot of money doing it because you have these... Um, Indigent inventors, in many cases, and they don't have—they they couldn't possibly spend three million dollars on, you know, Quinn Emanuel or more, more on Quinn Emanuel than that. But you know, a, any big law firm to actually litigate a patent case, and now with IPRs and all those other issues that you have to deal with, um, it's uh, it's difficult. But certainly, in in now just general commercial cases and IP and uh, all kinds of cases, uh, it's become uh, easier to approach. Um, or easier for plaintiffs to seek out representation, but I think that's one of the other things that we we are not shy about that, whereas other firms are. And the reason is because exactly what you said: we're trying to um, help people who are seeking justice and are, are seeking you know compensation where they've been wronged. And you know, if you have these these big law firms who have great attorneys, but they're just prohibitively expensive, and you know, two million is not going to go out and and Talk to you know one of the, the for, one of our former firms because it just wouldn't make any sense uh, for him, and he doesn't know how to talk their language. So we are very much about you know just getting the word out there, and also you know being down to earth about what we can do and how we can help. You know, one thing uh, to that point
6: is it helps when you're dealing with an area of law that's relatively new and and sort of unexplored and sort of a new frontier because a lot of You know, uh, there has to be some appetite for risk. uh, I think uh, in in that space, right? Because you you don't really know where you're, how big your playgrounds. You don't really know what the boundaries are. You don't really know what the fences are in the space that you're playing in. And and, that that's part of you do have to recognize that that I guess inherently entails a higher level of risk than. For example, than than you might take on a typical hourly case where you know you know you, you have a you know, you have a very well established body of law and you know, you know exactly how the case can turn out. probably from day one. Um, whereas here we're, we're kind of exploring new things,
5: and that also means we have to be efficient. We have to be creative because you know at, at some of our former positions. There was it was very much the idea of just churning because that's what the firm does that's how the firm makes money. so you have multiple people looking at the same research uh you have multiple people doing doc review you know and and there's no shortcuts because they want to generate as much hourly revenue as possible uh, when you're not doing that I think it it actually you know changes how you litigate quite a bit
3: so there are some who have commented in the media that um, this is just bringing a flood of frivolous lawsuits, um, and I'm hoping that you can respond to why this is so necessary and why um, this is not an overreading
5: of the Copyright Act. So somebody quoted Chance the Rapper, and my favorite quote from Chance the Rapper is, is about the internet trolls, uh, or sorry, internet paralegals and everybody thinks that they are an expert on the internet i've watched a lot of youtube videos even the most common headline is can you copyright a dance move that's not the question the moves that were that were taken because sometimes you could describe them as as you know infringing moves because they've taken a subset of the larger work they've gone to the heart of the work and taken what is most recognizable right so yes is there are there questions in copyright absolutely are these, in some cases, much more right of publicity? Like in our Blackboy JB case, we see that as a right of publicity case. In the case we're about to file, it's right of publicity because we just you know we, we, we see that as the stronger cause of action compared to, to some of the others. And you know, I don't think that when there is no uh, definition of if we are to pursue a copyright claim, there is no definition of uh, simple or social. Um, you know, there, there really are meets and bounds defined, then, you know, this is the opposite of frivolous. What we're trying to do is figure out which of these claims are actually the good ones. Are, are, is it possible that some of these plaintiffs fail? Yeah. Uh, is it likely that I think a lot of them are going to succeed? I think absolutely. But, you know, things happen and some claims are not as strong as others, but these are all colorable claims. These are all, in my opinion, very strong claims because there's also, you know, there's, there's the legal framework, and then there's right and wrong. And when anyone sees those clips, they say, oh, my God, those people are making billions of dollars off of someone else's creation. And that's wrong.
6: Yeah, and the other aspect to that is, is the monetization aspect. I think, you know, it's one thing uh, if you have, if you use a dance, you use it as, I don't know, maybe if you're using it as part of the user
5: report or using it. Uh, at a bar mitzvah, at a bar mitzvah, <laughs> or a wedding, or whatever. But
6: I think it's, an, it, it, it's it it turns to a different arena altogether when you have um, when you have these, I guess in this case, emotes or whatever, they, you know, whatever you have, whatever you want to call them. And they're selling these directly for you know in-game currency, which is translatable to real-world currency, where people are actually paying money and marketing uh, to sell these specific. Uh, creative works. And I think that pushes it into a very different territory than you know, if I'm at a friend's wedding and I start doing my awful rendition of uh, the
4: floss. So, just to put that in perspective, Fort, Epic doesn't sell Fortnite anymore. It sold it for a very brief period of time. Fortnite is free and they're making $400 million a month selling nonsense. All types, of, all types of little add-ons, including these individual packages that include these individual dances. Um, and that does, I mean, when, when you're talking about copyright, that changes the analysis. We're not talking about the entire game anymore. The entire game becomes a platform, a marketplace. And just because, at this point, Epic controls the marketplace doesn't mean it can't one day open up and have other people sell things on it. Now we have your regular marketplace where each individual item can be analyzed for infringement. The reason it's important for us to, to vindicate these rights now is because our economy has, has undergone a very dramatic shift. What used to be considered celebrity, what you had to do to become famous, was very, very different. You had to dedicate your life to it, essentially. And then what you did on a day-to-day basis was what made you famous. Very recently, what makes you famous now is perhaps a 15 second clip on Vine. And that is your one and only thing that makes you famous. It was your literally 15 seconds of fame. And you can now monetize that, or someone can steal it and they'll monetize it, which happens surprisingly a lot. And so we have to find ways and we have to probe various areas of the law. We have to probe copyright and see if see if, if that will work we've got a publicity and for all of these various things that can make people famous that can make people money in our new economy we have to figure out a way um, to keep those rights in the hands of the individuals rather than uh, large corporations. In order I think that is one of the, one of the best ways to ensure that, that um, our, our economy stops, Moving towards one where all the wealth is being <clears throat> um, focused in the hands of the rich is to ensure that intellectual property remains in the hands of its creators as as often as possible.
5: And speaking uh, of marketplace, um, I don't know if anyone's played Fortnite, but you know, in in some of the briefing that's uh, come out so far, Epic makes a, a big deal about transformative use and what happens in game, and that this is a battle royale. Well. If you just look at the store, they're not selling Battle royale or what they're selling here is a move that's named and in this particular case it's it's fresh and it's meant to evoke Alfonso Ribeiro's image it's meant to uh it's a nod to that certainly and i mean it's no surprise they they can't possibly say that that is not inspired by Alfonso Ribeiro, whether it's through. You know his his fame doing the move, or whether it's through the actual choreography one one of those aspects. Um, and this marketplace is the reason that this is so serious, because this is not just you know something that is creatively interpreted. This is a one to one correspondence of our client's movement.
3: Um, so i I know that you have some other things that you had in the PowerPoint, so before I start asking you guys about what it's like to be a Fordham alum, because obviously at Fordham, we have to hear all about how great Fordham is, Um, is there anything else you would want to add about uh, the law here?
4: Uh, We've really only addressed copyright, so I think...
5: Yeah, I mean, there's not, you know, we don't have to get too much into the others, unless somebody, if anyone has a question... We can open up to. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, sorry.
1: Yes? <laughs> so, I actually do have a question um, about di- different ways that these dances are given to players. So, um, having played Fortnite before myself, uh, while some of these dances are sold directly on the Fortnite shop, uh, there are two other kinds of dances that players can attain. One is the default dance, which is given to all players for free. Uh, that, of course, is the... Scrubs. You know, yeah, popularized by, by Zell and Scopes. And then there are dances that are earned via the Battle Pass, which is essentially a season pass of content, which you can earn a premium tier for, for $9.50 every three months or so. Um, and these dances you have to earn by leveling up the game, so not everyone who purchases the season pass will actually get that dance. So I was wondering that in these scenarios where the dance is not sold or it's sold indirectly, does the calculus of your argument change significantly?
5: I think there, there could be different damages analyses, right? Because the easiest is where, when there's a dollar price tag on the... Or, or V-Bucks, whatever it is, price tag on the individual dance. That's easy, really easy. Um, where it's part of the battle pass and it's one of whatever and it's not individually um, per, available for purchase, that, you know, maybe it's a division issue. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of... There, there be a will be... Royalty.
4: Is, is, if it's... Like, especially the one that comes default, if that's an advertisement to get people to the game, normally you would pay someone for the right to use their intellectual property in advertisement by way of a reasonable royalty. So I think that would be the analysis there.
6: I also don't think it would change that. I mean, it would change somewhat, but the core of the argument still remain the same, because if you think about it, these, these, these giant battle royale uh, multiplayer games, I mean, what does Epic get out of this, right? They, like, giving things away or, or providing incentives for people to keep playing the game or level up in the game, whatever, what have you. They want a critical mass play. Like, the more players they have, whether it was players spend money on individual purchases or not, that benefits the game as a whole. Because other people will see um, their friends playing it, and they'll spend money. So, you know, it's like if you go to a casino, right, and they comp you your buffet. They're not doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. They want you there in a the casino to spend money and That's sort of a similar concept here, right? I think once whether they're selling a particular moat directly or they're doing it indirectly for the uh, a level of mechanic or uh, unlocking or a game mechanic.
0: The result is the same, they want you to
6: spend more time in the game and get more players playing the game so they'll spend money. And you know, while yes, it will change certainly probably change the damages analysis somewhat, um, these are still you know, very real incentives to, to um, for people to use the game and play right. the game because, I mean, I don't think any game developer does anything out of the kindness of the hearts to frank, right? Right. right? They're, they're spending nine hours creating this content. Uh,
5: by the way, and this hits on the, the frivolous question, um, you know, one of the other important things besides the money damages for any of these cases is that the, there's something that is being lost every time one of these infringing emotes is sold which is the origination, right, or the, the credit to the author. And that that to me is extreme, and, and to many people are very, very important, including the artist, because if it's now the swipe it and it's not the Millie rock, that's part of the cultural misappropriation because then it becomes this is the Fortnite dance and it's not Millie's dance. And that's a big problem because then, you know, other people will be encouraged to infringe and... People will not value the artist and the artist probably, you know, could not sell as much uh, whatever anymore, whether it's T-shirts or whatever. He's not going to be known for that. In fact, it may very well be that, you know, that, that artist, he or she is going to be accused of actually stealing it from Fortnite. So, and, and, and we've seen that um, and we've heard about that. So, uh, there's that. Um, and yeah, I, think we, uh, I think we passed around this Facebook video of um,
6: somebody doing a blackboard jv JD so. Shoot dance, and uh, people are calling it the Fortnite dance, and we were just very, very confused. Well, it's entertaining, but also very confused. And I'm sure Blockboy JB was probably not going to be happy about seeing uh, people identify his creation with as being created by somebody else. There's another question.
7: Underlying um, concepts to diversity,
5: you can't have choreographers pulling together in a single lawsuit We we actually think, and I said this earlier, that each of our plaintiffs have a different set of rights potentially, right? And there in, in, in there is no common um, set of facts that you know exists for all. Like each one is different. The analysis would be different for each. So you know, Epic has not um, talked about consolidating these cases either.
7: Are the, if two million? The other choreographers open to a kind of royalty scheme, or are they wanting a full judgment on um, so that
5: we can establish some kind of law in this area? Great question, and this is actually unbelievable because it's so uh, immoral of Epic Games. So, if they would have just approached really any of our plaintiffs, I believe I think I could speak on um, almost universally on their behalf. Um, they would have come to the table and they would have negotiated something because epic could have said you had you could have great exposure to hundreds of millions of people and in fact what's going on now is epic is licensing content and doing deals with for example marshmallow they did an in-game concert where they told everybody in the game meet at you know xyz place and everyone did and there there they are i'm watching clips of this thing because I, I unfortunately didn't attend it. I don't play Fortnite that much, but I've played it. But I've seen the videos of it, and they're Millie rocking to Marshmallow. And it's ridiculous, because Marshmallow is getting something out of it, and if it's not money, he's definitely getting publicity. They're using his name, right? And so they're not doing that with Millie. And, and it's just, I don't understand it. I think that what they did, um, you know, in in some cases, we have seen um, you know, Epic kind of, recognize um, what they were doing is wrong and try to take steps to remedy it. Here, they're, they're really not at all. And I, I'm very confused by that. And I wonder why they're letting all this happen, because you know, there've been, there's been plenty of press, as everyone knows, this really you know tugged at the heartstrings of the American public and, and the world. I, I think Alfonso Ribeiro was very, very interesting to everybody. Everybody knows him. Everybody remembers the Fresh Prince. Everybody, a lot of people watch America's Funniest Home Videos. He's a great guy. And then when you have Backpack Kid, you have Orange Shirt, you have kids that they're they're, they're stealing dances from. It's insane. Um, so I, I really don't understand why they're doing it. But I, I can tell you that one of the first things that we talked to Epic about was you know coming to the table, and they refuse. So they want to fight this and they want to figure it out. I, mean, I think it's it's might be Epic more than. Our clients who actually want to figure out what the answer is, and what, and their answer is they would like all of these um, actions dismissed on motion to dismiss. Um, I don't think that's going to happen.
7: Um, yeah, right,
5: Brandon. Right uh, yeah, I can't comment specifically on that one, um, but I can tell you that if you look very, very closely at what Alfonso did on the Fresh Prince versus what Alfonso did post Fresh Prince. There is a different dance. There is a um, derivative work that he created. And that will, uh, I'll I'll leave you with that. And that one he owns in its entirety.
4: One thing you should, another thing you don't know about Romero is probably that he gets gets hired out by corporations for for events more, I mean, he's totally going to speak, but more often than not, it's to see the dance. He does this on a fairly regular basis, and he's been doing it on various shows and things. And um, so it has evolved, for sure. If not, completely changed over the years.
7: Then I wonder if part of the difficulty with um, kind of involved, uh, putting choreography into copyright law
1: is get uh, something about fair use and kind of where a line between fair use and people considering frivolous lawsuits, because. And for example, I remember a sitcom like recently they, they uh, have Ted Danson do the floss, and they specifically call it the backpack, backpack kid dance. And so I just wondered if the Fair Use has an issue
4: for... Uh, I think Fair Use is a really great tool for us to have in this because it's important to distinguish between strictly commercial use and sale of a thing and Fair Use. We don't want to make be making new law and create a world where nobody can dance because everybody's always afraid of uh, infringing somebody's copyright. What we do want is to create a new law that says you can't just sell it. it. And there's no fair use in taking something and selling it. There's fair use if you're commenting on it. There's fair use if uh, it's satirical in some way or it's part of a, a larger work. Um, but here we can see it's very clearly a... An individual item is being sold, and that that is another part of this new economy that I was talking about. Like uh, it's not it's not just that people are and their celebrity, the definition of that has changed, but also um, our idea of the virtual economy and what is valuable in the virtual world has changed significantly as well. Um, so yeah, fair use analysis is going to be very important, and it will it will address the idea that it will unleash this flood of
8: from those lawsuits if we succeed.
3: Yes, over here.
8: I just sort of had this, like, back and forth in my head, and, like, at one point when I heard this, I was thinking, well, like, part of, like, copyright is if you are ruining the marketplace for that item, then you're infringing it. And I was like, well, technically, like, this is, like, an entire new marketplace that they created, so they're not really, like, taking away from their marketplace. But then I started thinking about, like, NBA 2K, and they use, like, the player spaces, and then they definitely pay the players. Is that, like back and forth come up in your arguments, or...
5: Well,
4: yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's an interesting point. Um, I think that you just, um, it's, there's not just one, like, I think virtual marketplace is the virtual marketplace in general, uh, and like I said earlier, this particular marketplace is one that they control wholly. but if you think about it in terms of what the Apple Store is... Uh, It it is something that's open up. They control it. They control what goes into it, but other people can sell on it. Uh, And so that uh, I think is going to become more true of uh, of the video game marketplace as well. And so we have to make the law now to make sure that that people are protected once that economy breaks breaks out.
5: And you you know, I, I think it's. To Max's point about the virtual economy, you're seeing more and more um, games that have avatars that are you know, representative of people, where there's customizations and things that are in the virtual world that are slightly different or uh, very different from the real world. And you know, one example in, in Oculus Rift and you know the, the Oculus Store, you can you can see other people who are avatars, and so the marketplace is kind of just beginning and, and just opening up in terms of. What's available, and our performers shouldn't be restricted, or, or shouldn't be in a position where you know their their dances are now Fortnite's dances, and they're not allowed to capitalize, you know, based on that, or, or there's some kind of you know this uh, adverse in- inference because of it. And uh, the the reason that you're seeing those customizations is because when people spend time in the game, they 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 want to customize it, and that's what makes it different, cool. It's very social. There's now, you know, people on, on Fortnite talk to each other. It's becoming, uh, there's some articles that have been out about Facebook versus Fortnite and how certain people are on Fortnite as a a social network as opposed to just a game. And so that that's also very, very interesting. And why these things are valuable because the customization is, you know, part of your identity in that virtual world because you're not drawing up or, or you're not actually dancing and having the you know, right, right now, we don't have that capability in, in Oculus and other VR platforms. You can't just dance and have it capture your motion there. You'll have like arm movements potentially, but they're enhancing and they're customizing uh, the character in a way that mim- mimics the celebrities that people are, are either you know, in, in, interested in because they're cool, because they're funny, whatever it is, but they want to be affiliated with in some capacity
7: um I know there's a definition of choreography yet but what do you think would be an ideal definition of choreography that covers moves like um familiar rocks since they are they're not just simple steps um, there's a lot more execution it's like when the choreor- choreography
5: We don't have a definition yet, <laughs> well, um, but I would say what we're looking at is how it's been defined even at the Copyright Office, and we've seen that those definitions are really broad. And what it is, is a compilation or a series of, of movement. I think that's fair. It's a series of movements. I mean, I, I, at this point, I can't put that much more color on it, but it, it, it has to be something where, just like with, you know, words on a page... If you have, or, or you know, art or anything else, if you, if you have a, um, or, or um, music, right? So um, if you have a series of notes, we're not looking to, at the particular note. We're not looking at, you know, put your right foot in, put your right foot out. Kind of thing. We're looking at, um, you know, more, much more than that. And when you weave together all of these different movements, and sometimes it's not just footwork, it's, you know, as you kind of alluded to, It's movement of the body in in different ways. It's arms, it's, you know, your posture and all that.
6: And also part of what we're trying to do with this is really figure out what those meets and bounds are, right? I mean, if you want to use an analogy, you you can't really copyright a word or two, right? But you know you can copyright a poem. You know you can copyright a novel. You know you can copyright an article or an essay. Um, So where's that line drawn? And, you know, right now we're in an area of law where there's a complete scarcity of law. And part of what we are trying to do is figure out um, where those lines are, and, and the other aspect is also is to get some consistency from the copyright office. Right, as uh, I believe Dave was talking about earlier, you know, we have, in one example, we have uh, uh, the backpack kid choreography that was accepted by the copyright office. We have the Millie Rock, which um, you know, we've got two million here on top of a car, really, but, which is not. And we, you know, what, part of what we are trying to figure out is. What is it that differentiates to, Why did the Contemporary Office allow for one and didn't allow for the other? And you know, what, whether we have a definite mission, you know, whether we have the exact needs and bounds I think are, are or not is is a sort of a nebulous thing to explore, just as like how long is a piece of written you know, words, how many words do you need to uh, form a protected essay or, or poem? Um, we don't know that, but we'd like to get these examples and see. What those outer limits and what those inner limits are for um, what is protectable as choreography.
4: I would say we're focusing on, on, on just the outer. Limits. It's not on us to define what copyright means. It's all. It's on us. Well, not on us, but as a society, we need to decide what is not protectable. Every all of it is co- choreography. Um, what we need to do is figure out what would be dangerous to include in choreography as protectable under copyright, and that would be. Things that would make it difficult for people to create a dance out of other steps, out of smaller steps, and where it is clear, and I think that's what the legislators are, where it's clear the intent in creating and publicizing your particular dance series of dance moves was to create a line dance, was to create the macarena. If that's the way you advertised it, and that's the way you brought it to the world, and uh, then then you don't get copyright protection. Um, aside from those two things, I think choreography is fair game. Yeah. Um, uh, So,
8: assuming you were successful and won, um, and I'll just have to preface my question that I don't know a whole lot about the game. Um, Could you explain a little bit more about what your damage theory and calculation would be? Um, I I assume that the court's not going to grant you a windfall and give you 100% of the profits that they earn because there's other aspects of Dances that are important to a purchaser's decision, but how, how would you go about calculating what is owed to a client? I mean, if there's been no licensing history of these kind of dance moves, how how do you calculate, say, a reasonable royalty or something like that? What, uh, what are your
4: damage Well, Fortnite is free, and they sell only these packages. And these pack some of these selling. The, let's say um, ten dollars mm-hmm. to get three dances.
5: I think it's, in some cases, 8 bucks and you get one dance. So it's yeah, only, sometimes yeah. they sell them individually.
4: So if it's just the one dance, we'd say, give us those $8. Or, you know, if the court decides there's some element of, um, of their work in translating it from the YouTube video that they saw into the virtual dance itself, um, then maybe subtract costs of creating it. But I, think, I still think it's an unjust enrichment analysis for that. And for where they give away the games for free or
5: included with the game, that would be reasonable royalty. Yeah, and there's something 100% of for that. If it's, yeah. It, especially considering that these things, you know, this is not a coincidence. This is not like, um, you know, patent infringement or, or, or trademark infringement where there's some cases where there's no will. This is willful. Right, and so whether or not the willfulness plays in statu- in terms of statutory damages and things like that. Well, I'm just saying willfulness as a, in the non legal definition.
4: Not statutory punitive damages, not right. And the other
6: aspect also is that you know you have certain examples where they're direct. You can see exactly what they're selling, right? So, for example, if you play NBA 2K18 or NBA 2K19. You, know, you go in, you customize your, your avatar, and you've got, you know, on the screen, you've got uh, uh, the shoot dance for you know, 500 coins, which is like the equivalent of five bucks, right? Or, or a very specific emoji can buy for 10 bucks, 7 bucks, whatever the case may be. Um, so you've got, it's not like they are showing a package. And in that sense, you've got one specific item, which is uh, one direct, one-to-one correlation with the dance itself. I saw
7: enough on this question earlier. Um, dance is kind of interesting because you have the choreographer sometimes as the originator of the creativity, and the dancer is following through with that direction. So, are, do you consider them joint
5: authors under copyright, or would it be the dancers who can claim the right? I mean, who owns the property in this situation? Uh, I think is your each plaintiff in our, in our cases. I mean, I could tell you like two million is the performer and the choreographer. I think in all. All if, cases. If, if it was a choreographer, a separate choreographer. It's, it's the choreographer. Choreographer owns the copy. Yeah, but I think in all of our cases, it's the same person. Um, if if a court if the court says you don't own a copyright, the copyright, 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 copyright's not valid for whatever reason. Not protectable. Um, right.
8: Or yeah, it's not original enough or not creative enough. Uh, I guess all that claim.
5: state by state? Or is it- they, they are state law claims.
4: Right. So I believe in most states, right publicity gives you um, lost profits rather than um, rather than pulling back profits, but that's not, and it also changes whether or not, it, on, based on whether it was willful or not. Um, but for the majority of it, I think your instinct is correct. That's the lost profits analysis. Okay. Yes? Um, you mentioned earlier about the potentially racist element.
8: History of why the copyright office seems less willing to grant protection for choreography, and I was wondering if you, use the panel, and also Kara, expand on that. And is are you seeing that potentially in
5: the kind of responses we're getting from the office? She wrote the note. She <laughs> she can definitely comment on some of the history because she's she's got some good stuff in that note. Um, but yes, I, I think what we are seeing. Uh, Backpack Kid versus To Milly, for example, that is a good one. And copyright office seems to be making it as difficult as possible for us in almost every case, asking questions that, that normally, if you're if you're a copyright practitioner, copyright office is really just meant to rubber stamp things. I mean, they they, are, they really don't not have uh, the ability to make judgment calls on what should and shouldn't be, unless it, there are bright line rules, and here there really aren't. Because copyright exists the moment it's in, it's contained within a fixed tangible medium. So if someone's dancing and you video, video it as soon as it hits the memory card or the tape, as it were, in the, in the past, um, you know that becomes fixed in the tangible medium, and you have copyright. And the registration is more of a formality. And we're we're getting questions about you know just things that could have could come up later, ownership issues, things like that. Um, that you know. I have a feeling that the copyright office is paying very, very close attention um, and trying to figure out how to deny us because they don't want to make the decision on their own. They'd rather the the courts make the decision, I believe, because these are are tough decisions. Um, And I think that the disparate treatment between Millie and and Backpack Kid is one such example. Um, And you also see just with Epic, you see what Epic's doing is they seem to have relationships with... um, now they have Marvel. They have NFL. Uh, they they seem to go for big companies. Um, Marshmallows Caucasian. They were going to do another deal with. Um, it was like an old uh, an old rock band or something. I forgot who it was, but uh, I think also Caucasian. So that they, you know, it's Millie. Millie has been quoted as saying that you know he knows that they uh, he feels that they have treated him differently because they did not think that he would lawyer up. They thought that they would just get away with taking what he had and they didn't think that he would ever be in a position where he would be litigating it. They thought they could just get away with it. So I think that's also part of it. Um, and that, you know, does anyone...
3: I can add to the history element of it a bit. Um, so before the Copyright Act considered adding choreography as if, uh, something that's protectable in the 1976 amendments, prior to that, choreographers had been trying to use copyright law to their advantage for a very long time. Um, and that history falls very clearly on racial and sex, uh, like sex-based like discrimination lines as well. Um, it wasn't until dance in America became to be seen as a very white and male endeavor that it became popular in the right circles, um, that they had the ability to lobby for this. Um, and you can see in some of the very early cases, uh, for example, There's uh, Folsom v. March, which is in the very early 1900s. Um, There was a woman who choreographed this dance called the Serpentine Dance. Um, It was described as being very erotic. Um, I don't quite see it, but she basically had these big scarves and she would move her arms around and she had this really cool lighting scheme and it made her look like a multicolored serpent, essentially. Um, And her student who used to perform it for her, much to your point, Hannah, uh, she went um, to Paris and put it on herself, saying that she was the original choreographer, and this woman went to Paris, and she was like, excuse me, that's my dance. (laughs) Um, But because this piece of choreography was not considered art, it was considered uh, vaudeville, it was considered base entertainment, It was not given the protection of copyright under uh, not being advancing the arts and sciences, which was the standard at the time. But the hope is that the 1976 amendments have sort of changed that mentality um, and could offer protection to a broader interpretation of choreography to many of those who are dancers or who appreciate dance would immediately say, oh yeah, of course, yes, that's choreography. (laughs) Hope that helps.
5: I also believe that the Copyright Office has said on its own that um, breakdancing cannot be subject to choreography um, or or protection under choreography as well as cheerleading. So I don't necessarily agree with with either of those positions, but uh, that's what the Copyright Office has said. So maybe that's a future line of cases.
3: Well, we just have a few minutes left, so just because we're at Fordham, and I happen to love being at Fordham, um, I was hoping that you guys could say something, if you feel this way, uh, about how Fordham has helped you throughout your career. Obviously, you've all had very interesting ones, um, but is there anything that you feel like Fordham, either as a student or now has given you support as an alum, um, that's been really notable to you?
6: I can start off on this. I guess I'm the one who graduated the most recently. Um, I'm still in the old building. And uh, I, I definitely enjoyed my time at Fordham. I would say that for all of you, I don't know if it's too late for some of you, uh, to definitely take uh, the IP intellectual property. Uh, I don't know if the Professor Lazada makes in the audience here. Uh, is he in here? Okay, he showed up. This is going to be a shameless plug. Um, you should take his clinic. I did not see him there before I said this. So I to make that clear. Um, but for me, that was definitely a highlight of my uh, time before, because you go from a lot of the theoretical, a lot of the law, you which know, is in any case a lot things like that actually uh, to actually, uh, actually doing um, interacting with clients, write briefs, um, you know, even basic things like trademark applications. It's more of your practical day-to-day. Um, and work you know, hour to hour to hour lawyer stuff, and you know, so for me that was a good uh, introduction to some of the basics of the practice of law. And the other thing i will introduce you to is um, my most enjoyable activity, which is uh, recording your time and billing. Um, that's a great thing to learn.
4: Uh, one thing that was omitted from my biography earlier is that I was also um, a, a senior editor, I believe it was
0: you technology
4: a um, technology uh, uh, Yeah, on the IPLJ uh, with David here. Um, so that was a really great experience. It definitely um, prepares you for a lot of the site checking that you have to do <laughs> as an attorney. Uh, and also, I just introduces you to some really great people in the field. Um, and then after I graduated, sometime after I graduated, I think about four years into my career, I was back in these halls. Well, I was in these halls for the first time because I was in the whole building before that, um, meeting with Joel Reidenberg, one of the best professors here um, in the CLIP office. Um, again, uh, writing a paper. This one was for WIPO. And, um, you yeah, know, if you have any chance to, to, to interact with Reidenberg and CLIP, you should do that.
5: I think that... Um... I was really most interested in law school in the first year, and then I was working a lot after that. So I really wanted to get out after, and I wanted to start working and making money. Um, but the, the Fordham's network and Fordham's reputation is really outstanding, not only in the city, but you know throughout the United States. And that, to me, has helped the most because the reason I went here is I knew that this would be the type of school that would prepare me to get into you know a very great firm and that's true. I started during the recession when things were not so good and you know nonetheless you know Max and I were working at uh, Quinn Emanuel and Quinn was notorious for only uh, recruiting from Ivy schools but uh, definitely made lots of exceptions and lots of Fordham hires because they needed. People who had technical backgrounds and good experience and things, but Fordham, as far as I'm concerned, the caliber of, of students—and this is true of our hiring now—we have a lot of Fordham people we hire, uh, and even John Pierce, you know, who founded the firm, uh, says that you know the Fordham people are not only intelligent but are hungrier than a lot of the others, um, you know, a lot of the other uh, schools, like. Uh, I won't. I won't mention. Um, <laughs> but uh, there, um, so definitely the reputation and the, the network. Um, it, I think it's very, very helpful. There's events that are put on that are really great to attend. Like Hugh Hansen has. Um, is it the International IP Institute or something like that? Whatever, whatever he calls it. Um, it's an international IP conference, and it gets a lot of people from all over the world. Uh, I was focused on FRAND issues, fair, reasonable, non-discriminatory terms and conditions. Relating to um, patents and standard essential patents that were uh, very important in the Apple Samsung wars. And there were fascinating um, discussions that were given in that conference from international scholars. And because we were we were dealing with friend issues that were kind of global in scope. Um, but no, we, we, I'm very proud to be a Fordham graduate. I, I think it's it's a great school. Everybody, certainly if you're practicing in New York City, everybody knows it and loves it.
3: Well, thank you, everyone, for being here today. Um, if you are here for CLE credit, make sure that you sign out. And um, if anyone would like, we have copies of the copyright reconsideration letter uh, over here, as well as the expert uh, testimony that goes with it. So thank you again.
5: Thank you. you
3: also
0: the Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderator is Mark Patterson. Our volume 29 editor and chief is Jeffrey Greenwood. Our managing editor is Michael Rivera. A special thanks to the members of Pierce Bainbridge, Kara Krakauer, Sean Carrado, and Michael Rivera for making this event possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. You can follow us at our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ford of My PLJ. You can also visit our website at ForteMyPLJ.org for daily content. We also have a Patreon at Ford of My PLJ. and thank you to our one-dollar subscriber, Michael Rivera. I'm your online editor, Patrick Ho. Thank you for listening, and see you next week.